Hey there, how's it going? Good to have you. Welcome back to Journey On. It's great to be here with you. I'm Dave Smelser. We got a great show for you today. So launching right into our topic of the day, politics makes most people I know, by which I mean everyone I know, unhappy and mostly outraged most of the time. Whatever your political take is, the stakes do seem pretty darn high at the moment. That said, every big-time spiritual sage, the superstars, also lived in times with massive political stakes. They had leaders like Nero, who by all we can tell was a psychopath, or they had pressing political issues like, as we'll touch on today, their crusades, you know, a full-out religious war. And yet these smarty spiritual people predicted something. They did. They had a prediction. They predicted something really provocative for us. Namely, they predicted that all of us, as much as we feel how crucial it is that our political convictions prevail, as I do, we're going to discover that if we just get still for a moment, we actually want quite a bit more than that. Deep down, they predict, we're going to discover that we don't just want to win whatever high-stakes political game we're in at the moment. We actually want to change the game. We want to change it in a way that empowers us to be happy, useful, and a gift to people around us and to the whole world. So let's consider their big-time prediction for a moment. Along the way, we're going to touch on things like why these folks think that in the spirit of this prediction, it's so important to realize that the Bible's political take actually looks more like a dialogue than we might have been told. And we're going to consider how contemplative spiritual practice powerfully neutralizes ways that politicians always use to try to stir up your misery and outrage. We'll think about how one great saint, Francis of Assisi, was turned around by a surprising scripture, which then kicked off a 400-year virtuous cycle that created the modern world and blew the doors off all previous political and spiritual models, and how that might suggest something pretty amazing for us today. So, hey, that should give us something good to chew on. Let me also mention here at the top that if this stuff and the other stuff we talk about here grabs you, I do lead an online small group on this, currently on Wednesday nights. Actually, it's not that small anymore. It's got people from all over the world, enthusiastic people from several countries, and you're most invited to check it out. I also lead a live group along these lines on Sunday afternoons in Los Angeles. For information on either of these, you can email mail at blueoceanfaith.org. Mail, M-A-I-L, at blueoceanfaith.org. All right, let's do this. We're going to begin with a look at a friendship between the world's most famous Buddhist contemplative, who also, not coincidentally for our purposes here, is among the world's most famous political leaders, and a friend of his, one of the most famous Christian contemplatives, who also reshaped his country. So kick us off, Ryan Hood, as we dive into Let's Talk About Politics. friend I talk about deep things with, and he knows that I'm totally interested in two big-time spiritual leaders. They're both in their mid-80s now. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who played a big part in South Africa, not becoming a bloodbath after the fall of apartheid, and the Dalai Lama. Turns out they're friends. I suppose I, suppose I don't have too many people who are peers who could relate to them. I actually talked some about their friendship last year on another podcast I help out with called Blue Ocean World. Seems to me these two might be more respected than any other spiritual leaders on earth. Maybe you can make a case for Pope Francis, though I'm going to still point these two as uh, the, the number ones. And they're great examples of the kind of contemplative journeying spirituality we look at here. Archbishop Tutu, we're told, prays four hours each morning, and the Dalai Lama ups him by meditating five hours at the start of his day, which Tutu then teases him about by calling this too much. 
And they're both also unique in being political leaders to at least some degree. The Dalai Lama is the head of the oppressed Tibetan people, who is regarded as an enemy of the Chinese government, to the point that he leads from exile. And again, Desmond Tutu played a central role in reshaping a whole nation. Today, I want us to think for a moment together about how this spirituality we talk about on this podcast is about more than just our own internal experience of life. It's certainly about that. But I want us to consider at least a few thoughts about how it could connect us to our deepest dreams of what might happen for the whole world and what our role could be in that and how this ties in. Now, as just one humble person, you might wonder how such big things apply to you. As someone who doesn't have any power to shape the destiny of whole nations beyond maybe your vote and your political opinions, I guess I'm hoping that this stuff would empower some cheerier ways for you to experience politics, which then might also offer you a little more hope for the world and for the role you might play in the world. And okay, in my deepest heart, I won't kid you, this will be grandiose, I do dream that you and I could like help kick off a worldwide movement of Jesus that would reshape the way that Christians are seen to impact things in the political world, and we'd be just amazing, it would sweep the world. So that's just full disclosure on my part, Re- reeling it back in now. But let me also flag one thing I'm not trying to do with this podcast. I'm not trying to tell you what political opinions God wants you to hold. For reasons I'll explain later, I think your opinions about that were shaped a whole lot earlier than you might think. Instead, I'm believing there's a spirituality that can empower good things to happen within your convictions. But back to my friend's conversation with me about the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. He points out that one of the remarkable things about how their spirituality interacts with their connection to the political world is how both of them, much like St. Francis was, are known for one thing, are known for their joyfulness. He says to me, isn't that remarkable? In a world where political leaders are known for stirring up outrage, here are these two bundles of joy who still play a major role on the world stage. What do we make of that? And then illustrating this, he connected me with a John Oliver interview of the Dalai Lama from a couple years back. Let me give you just a brief taste of it. Your Holiness, it is an honor to speak to you. May I say... Tashi Delek. Tashi Delek. Thank you. How is my pronunciation? Tashi Delek. I think very good. In my defence, I just started learning Tibetan 40 seconds ago. (laughs) So let's talk about China, Mm. because the Chinese government absolutely hates you, don't they? Yes. Publicly, one government official said you're a wolf wrapped in monk's robes, Mm. and photos of you are forbidden in many places. You don't, to me look like an evil wolf. <laughs> they described me as a demon. You're a demon? Oh. Yeah. Then I immediately reacted, yes, I'm demon with horn. <laughs> yeah, because that's the classic demon, uh, right? Yes. I think that's when so they, they look at you, that's what they see. Well, whatever they want to say, that's their freedom. I have no, no negative feeling. I just feel uh, a love like that. I practice, you see, taking others' anger, suspicion, distrust, and give them patience, uh, tolerance, and compassion. I practice that. But it seems the Chinese government are particularly good at taking your positivity, turning it back into negativity, and oppression of the Tibetan people, and they hand it back to you as it was. Yes. People who meet the Dalai Lama often remark, as people do when they meet Desmond Tutu, what a great laugh they have and how often they use it. And they remark on their graciousness, also not a trait we think of with most political leaders. The Dalai Lama refers to his hardliner Chinese opponents as, quote, 
my friends, the enemy. And even on this John Oliver clip, he talks about a pretty rigorous spiritual practice he pursues each day, which we'll look at in a moment. It focuses on taking hate from others and turning it into love, kind of a remarkable process. But before we get there, let's start with a brief Bible tour on this stuff. So first off, the Bible does a lot of back and forth on political issues, which history has proven, with only a tiny bit of work, we all can make suit our preferred perspective. So St. Paul in Romans 13 says we should obey the ruling authorities, a noteworthy thing for early Christians in the Roman Empire to hear, because their ruling authority was among the worst, most narcissistic and bloodthirsty leaders ever, Nero. That said, in Acts chapter 4, Peter says he's going to obey God before he's going to obey rotten, corrupt ruling authorities. So the opposite of what, Peter's, of what Paul said. But then, in Peter's own New Testament letter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he reverses field and does take Paul's point of view. Being entirely acquainted with that back and forth, the mystics and contemplatives we've been learning from in these early podcasts gravitate towards more openly ambiguous political passages. Those are the ones they like. So their starting point perspective would be along the lines of Joshua chapter 6, right before the famous Battle of Jericho, which reads, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So it turns out this man is an angel. Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither is the answer. Resisting the temptation to assume that our side is God's side is a fundamental caution these spiritual masters emphasize. In that spirit, they're also big on Psalm 146, which says, Do not put your trust in princes, in powerful political leaders, in human beings who cannot say Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord their God. They resist the temptation to think that if only their side could implement its political agenda, all would be well, as important as that might be in the short term. Putting our trust in princes and people in power, even if there are people, has a long history of disappointment in the big picture. Again, even after doing that, uh, we might have a political victory in the moment. We're, they argue, not going to like where it leads. These folks also tend to be anti-nationalist in the spirit of Hebrews 11 and 1 Peter. We're called, in Hebrews 11, strangers and sojourners in whatever our country is right now. We're told that the big picture is that we are citizens of heaven. We're just passing through our current country. And we'll see with St. Francis, they think it's a big deal that Jesus didn't claim to be the tribal God of Christians, but regarded himself as the God of everybody, of the whole world. That actually is quite a transformative thought for them. As we talked about in the first two podcasts, their commitment is to prayerful meditation, to the point that they're not living reactively, but to use the term of the first podcast, that they're living with the kind of equanimity they want that makes profound justice possible. I've just been reading a neuroscience book, which says that evolution has made sure that our brains retain negative things, but forget positive things. The expression this author uses is that negative experiences and emotions are Velcro, while positive experiences and emotions are Teflon, or like butter. Positive experiences slide off of our brain. And so politics has always been geared to playing on this neuroscience insight, to stirring us up against the threat from our political enemies, knowing that that sense of threat is hardwired into us. So that appeal is always going to work. Partisan political cable networks and websites and Twitter feeds have honed this as such a fine art that we're statistically more separated from our political enemies than we have ever been. The spiritual masters, on, by contrast, are entirely against our being stirred up by anything. 
Now, I'm by no means saying we don't have tremendous political stakes right now. I'm pretty strongly on one political side now myself. But now let's take a moment to pull back from that, to talk about some broader perspectives that these spiritual masters insist are the big picture, which remembering that they are spiritual masters, they argue are impossible without deep spiritual practice to, pull, to have these perspectives. But if we can pull them off, they say it will open the possibility of something really tremendous. Now, there's actually one more scripture which you can make a case has had more wide-ranging political impact for good than any other in the whole Bible. It gives us an important clue to this deeper political dream we've talked about. But many of us would find this surprising. It's actually a brief story about Jesus. It's from Luke chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, and it reads, While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. This scripture on the surface doesn't seem political, but the point is pretty radical. The view in his era, and ever since then, I suppose, was that a little bit of disease would contaminate something otherwise pure. It's the image of having a barrel full of pure water and then pouring a thimble full of sewage water into it. Even though it's just a tiny amount, not many of us would then drink that water. And that fits our neurological bent towards negativity. Things can be overwhelmingly good, but one negative story becomes the story that sticks in our spirits. But here it goes in the reverse. People didn't touch lepers, of course, because in that era, they were horribly contagious, maybe in every era, and there was no cure then. But Jesus thought the flow went the other way for reasons we're going to look at in some depth. He thought he could make the leper healthy rather than the leper making him sick. And then St. Francis took that story as one of the constituting stories of what his whole life and impact became about. As a young man starting on this journey, he saw a leper on the road. He felt disgust, as many people would. But he remembered the story of Jesus, and he leapt off his horse or whatever, and he went and hugged and kissed the man. Well, the Francis legend says that the leper then disappeared. He was an angel testing Francis, says the legend. Hugging lepers did become a centerpiece of the Franciscan order. And that shaped his whole view of opponents. He didn't have to be afraid of them as unclean threats. Instead, with Jesus, like the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu, he could take in whatever the threat was, and he could somehow return it with love. Turns out people like St. Francis and Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama ask a key question of us when we think about engaging in the great political and cultural questions of our time. And this is, are we looking only for a short-term victory in the key fight of the day? Or are we looking for a long-term transformation in the whole society? Or, as I said earlier, do we just want to win the game, or do we also hope to change the game? I, of course, want my political side to win. I, like everyone, think in this moment this is really important. But when I get even a little bit still, I realize I want more than that. If my political side wins the next battle, here's what I'm going to feel. Relief. But what I won't feel is joy. And even the relief won't be lasting because I'll still be on full alert for the next attack. So you win the presidency, but what about the Supreme Court? What about Congress? What about what? There's always the next thing. It's fascinating to look at spiritual movements in this light. I think you'll notice some important similarities and overlap with political movements. Uh, as you know, historically, spirituality and politics are often entirely interwoven in societies. So let's take a look for a moment at the most famous religious revivals. These are the instances where spiritual movements have, in fact, overflowed to whole societies. And there seem to be two main types of these revivals, and they have very different effects. 
One type are holiness revivals, which would fit the pattern of the American First and Second Great Awakenings, or the lesser known but still very impressive Welsh revival. Here, the emphasis is on sin, both in the believers themselves and in the wider world. So a big scripture for holiness revivals would be 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. So the theory is that if churchgoers are fervent enough about their own sinfulness, God is going to do a great work in the larger culture. And we've got some big-time models of this with things like the First Great Awakening under Jonathan Edwards, where believers would scream and moan under the conviction of their sins, and it did spread around the Western world. The Second Great Awakening with Charles Finney and what might have been a Third Great Awakening under D.L. Moody all had this emphasis and all did go big. The Welsh Revival at the beginning of the 20th century, a biggie, same thing. We're told that one of the Welsh Revival's big effects was shutting down the bars and jails in Wales. It addressed sins. But here's just a few things to note. The big social effect of these holiness revivals do tend to be pretty stern and restrictive rather than generating great new stuff. So the holiness revivals led to prohibition as one big consequence. Holiness revivals also tend to be short-lived. 20 years seems to be a standard span. So 20 years after the Welsh revival, we're told that the jails and the bars were again very populated. And holiness revivals tend to fry people. I led a church in Cambridge, Massachusetts for many years, which would be on the outskirts of what came to be called the Burned Over District. That was called that because after all these waves of holiness revival swept through there in the 18th and 19th centuries, that whole area became burned out on religion and famously resistant to it for what's now 150 years and counting. And flowing out of the last of these revivals was increasingly contentious politics in which the other side now was not just differing with you, they were of the devil. Because again, the stakes were identifying sin. So you could project that where Jesus touched and healed the leper, this would be more along the lines of being diligent to note, is there any leprosy in me? And also being diligent when faced with an actual leper to shout, unclean, unclean. So that's one model. If holiness revivals are the one side of the coin, the other interesting model is St. Francis himself and his followers. He came along when the church in his era was faltering. He decided personally to trust God for everything, And as people started to follow him, he became one of Christianity's great contemplatives, one of the great examples of journeying spirituality. We're told he had his followers spend half of their time in prayer and then half of their time preaching. But their preaching was about the goodness of God. It was not about the sinfulness of outsiders. Again, his transforming incident was embracing and kissing an infectious leper. So for the rest of his life, rather than seeing sinfulness, he saw the goodness of God wherever he looked, despite his extreme poverty, And he offered that as a gift to all people. You might argue that his era politically wasn't as fractured and high stakes as ours. But as I mentioned earlier, the crusades were going on. His most famous political act was going to preach the goodness of Jesus to a sultan, a key Muslim warrior. He assumed that when he did that, he'd be killed. But after a fraught, uncertain start to their relationship, they became friends to the point that the first Franciscan monastery was on land in Jerusalem that was given to them by the sultan, by this Muslim leader, by the enemy. And then Francis transformed both European society and European religion in a revival that some people argue lasted for 400 years and created the modern world. So it lasted 16 times longer than a holiness revival. And where you could make a case that the Great Awakenings culturally kicked off an increasingly divisive cycle between religious and non-religious people. 
where prohibition, we're taking away your liquor, led to the Scopes monkey trial. Don't teach that science stuff to our kids, and so on. By contrast, Francis kicked off a virtuous cycle with people you might regard as his political enemies, people who ultimately became the drivers of secularism. So without the Franciscan revival and its new trust that God would so directly flow into human experience, most scholars think there wouldn't have been a renaissance. G.K. Chesterton's book on St. Francis, while heavy sledding, is fascinating along these lines. The Renaissance then returned the favor by creating the ways of thinking that molded Martin Luther and others and kicked off the massive religious revival that was the Reformation. And the Reformation's new ways of thinking were so transforming that they kicked off the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, which created newfound prosperity in the modern world. One guy lit this fire, St. Francis. And all that fundamental, generative, productive transformation of Europe and beyond in both the religious and secular worlds went well beyond winning one, even one important political battle. It had a much bigger picture. And like Desmond Tutu, who helped South Africa move beyond apartheid without a bloody insurrection, and like the Dalai Lama, who's led the oppressed Tibetan people, Francis was a contemplative who experienced God in the middle of all the hardships of very hard lives as a fountain of joy. Doesn't that Franciscan revival idea grab you? Wouldn't it be great to experience a sort of spirituality that would generate so many great things that would help the world in such profound ways, rather than just reinforce how you and your friends are virtuous and your enemies are villainous? Wouldn't it be great to have a spirituality that's deeply centered in love and a joyful experience of God in the whole world, rather than experiencing a spirituality which is best known for what it's going to restrict in the whole world? And Also, rather than one that will famously dampen your own joy as it encourages you to zero in on the sin in yourself and in people not like you as a central thing. Again, the key scripture here, Jesus and the leper. So what might we keep in mind as we dream of this Franciscan politics? First, maybe to use a scripture that I've used a few times on these podcasts so far, be still and know that God is God. Be still and know that God is God, which of course is quoting Psalm 46.10. The spirituality we talk about here is an irreducible element to this virtuous cycle. This transformative cycle can't be pulled off just as a decision you and others make. It needs a profound spirituality to create it, even as a possibility. Which, again, is why I think Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama are so remarkable in their impact. The stillness of Psalm 46 is the opposite of the kind of reactivity that the spiritual masters say is the baseline we all start from the reactivity that threatens to make all of our lives unhappy and lonely. We talked last week about the power of what some of these teachers called getting behind the waterfall of our thoughts and emotions as a daily or even twice daily activity. Among the many benefits of this is the ability to act act out of stillness and love rather than to act out of outrage and reactivity. Let's look at why it is that Jesus and St. Francis can hug lepers and not be infected by them. What are the mechanics of why they spread health in ways previously understood to be impossible rather than taking in the disease that's coming their way. It seems to me it's because of their spiritual practice. Their stillness gave them the kind of purity of heart that poured out this kind of healing and joy. Jesus says that the key spiritual issue is not external purity of being good on the outside. It's what, in his word, flows out of a person. So the leaders we're talking about this week give a great deal of attention to what flows out of them and how to create something inside of them which will flow out with joy, healing, and love. So be still and know that God is God in those ways. Second, be conscious of the political media you take in. 
So if what's flowing out of you is this sort of joy and love from spiritual practice, be conscious of the political media that you're taking into you. This is the other side of the coin. I'm not suggesting that you withdraw from knowing what's happening, but the incentive of all media is to encourage you to tune in tomorrow or in 20 minutes to see what happens next. And the most effective way to do this is to constantly outrage you about the nefarious things your political enemies are up to. This helps keep you unhappy and, as it were, frothy and stirred up and ready to tune into what they have to say tomorrow that's going to outrage you some more. Now, to be sure, your political enemies might, in fact, be up to nefarious things. I'm not saying they're not. Jesus says, quote, I know what's in the hearts of people. So he's not naive. But this is where you need your own spiritual practice in the spirit of the folks we've been talking about. So Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama are certainly entirely informed on the news they need to know. They, again, are not naive about their opponents. But their very intentional and persistent spiritual practice dampens their reactivity and outrage and makes it possible for them to, as it were, hug lepers and spread health rather than become sick themselves. Third, in this spirit, to quote Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This, of course, was Jesus' command to us in the Sermon on the Mount. But doesn't, doesn't this seem difficult to live out or even to remember having been said at all in the current high-stakes political world? Our enemies are always presented as existential threats, and so perhaps they are. But our first episode was all about the kind of equanimity which sees past threats to the hope and possibility that God is suggesting. The Dalai Lama talks about this practice of taking in all the hatred towards him from the Chinese hardliners and then transforming that hatred into love and compassion. That's the heart that's made him such a respected and followed leader. He uses a practice he calls compassion meditation. It has parallels to loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. So the idea is in prayerful meditation, you find a wish for yourself and then you wish it for your loved ones, but then you wish it for ones you have more mixed feelings about, and then you wish it for your enemies. You kind of move from people you only love to people who are the problems in your life. So a wish in the Dalai Lama sense might be something like, may so-and-so be happy and blessed and safe or something like that. Now, you can see, if you come from a church-going perspective, how that idea, becoming a prayer, is actually just a hop, skip, and jump away. It's what Christians call intercession. We're told that the Dalai Lama does that for over an hour each day in itself. He does compassion meditation towards his enemies. When he got told this, in my hearing, on a tape, Archbishop Tutu excitedly talked about how he prays in a similar way for the people who gave him and his family death threats. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Fourth, hold and act on all the views you hold, but never compromise your daily joy. Feel free, hold and act on all the views you in fact hold, but never compromise your own daily joy. This could be a tangent, but research suggests that our political views are largely formed by our culture, either the one we grew up with or our reaction to it, rather than by any religious teaching, even for those of us who listen to quite a lot of religious teaching. Years back, when I was with a group of pastors visiting Muslim leaders in the Middle East, some of them called themselves Muslims who follow Jesus. I don't have time to adequately talk about all that I learned from that, which was a lot. Maybe we'll touch on it later. But that blew my mind. If they followed Jesus, didn't that make them, just logically speaking, Christians? They got mad at that thought. No, they said, in Lebanon, where I was at the time, Christians were the people who'd waged war on them. And I was told Christian was a cultural term there. Church-going rates among Lebanese Christians were actually quite low. So their point was their identity was Muslim, but they were excited to follow Jesus. Those things were separate. 
that was really provocative for me because my background was secular. And I realized that was very different than was true of many of my fellow churchgoers whose background was really Christian. So maybe they were, this is an odd phrase, maybe they were Christians who followed Jesus, and I was a secularist who followed Jesus. Maybe that explained why the politics they brought with them, which they so strongly felt were God's politics, didn't make sense to me at all. Maybe our starting points explained a lot. So in our own fraught, high-stakes political moment, I do think I can do no other than to continue believing in, and to whatever degree I can, acting on the things I believe politically. But I also intend to do it as a contemplative, as a journeyer, getting behind the waterfall and being still to know that God is God and loving my enemies and praying for those who persecute me and the marginalized that are in my field of view. And like Jesus and Francis and the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu, I wholeheartedly dream of walking this out each day with joy. It's the joy that not only makes our lives feel good, it also makes it possible to lead with justice towards our political opponents. You know, when we're outraged and miserable, we tend to pass that on. St. Francis, who kicked off all this good right in the middle of the Crusades, is famously known as the Apostle of Joy. This is how he and Jesus could hug lepers and bring health rather than become sick themselves. Let's close with a little more of John Oliver's interview with the Dalai Lama to see another taste of this. The Dalai Lama speaks pretty directly about his take on how Chinese hardliners are acting. The man, as you will see, has his opinions. But the spirit in which he communicates this, at least to me, is pretty notable. So the context here is John Oliver talking about how the Chinese might name themselves a new Dalai Lama when this Dalai Lama dies, which might just serve to end the whole institution of the Dalai Lama at all, which would make them happy is the point. So do you think you might be the last Dalai Lama? Very possible. You do? Yes. If, you you if, might be it. If, if, if I become last Dalai Lama, I feel very happy. Why, because you were a good one? Oh, yes. I may say quite intelligent. <laughs> oh, then, oh, you're calling yourself intelligent, oh, are you? Oh, I think so, so a little I, bit I, of arrogance I, there as well. <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't resolve your reincarnation issue, are you not worried that China will appoint their own Dalai Lama and he may not speak like you're speaking now? That also, if may I say so, Yeah. that's also, you see, one of the foolish acts. Short-sighted. China. Without using human brain properly. <laughs> it's harmful. That's, that, that is a guaranteed way to calm the Chinese government down, to tell them they're not using the human brain properly. <laughs> I told them, our brain usually, you see, have the ability to create common sense. The Chinese hardliners in their brain, that part of the brain is missing. Zing. But this, you know, I think the, Chi the Chinese leaders, Chinese communists, they are very much concerned about the image of China. I'm happy to sit here and criticise China with you because I know the consequences for me are not necessarily as bad as they are for you. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I wish, you see, they call me demon. So I want another demon. So you become demon. No, 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 you can't transfer, you can't reincarnate the demon into me. <laughs> yes, yes. No, 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 don't make me a demon. <laughs> no, 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 you can't do, we, you cannot do that. You, you know, Can he do that? As I mentioned, you see. Oh, no. <laughs> this is not see, how I wanted this know, interview to you know, go. Again, that man has a great laugh. 
wouldn't you love to be part of a movement of God that would be lasting and beneficial to the whole world the way the Franciscan revival turned out to be? Doesn't that address a longing in you? You know, maybe we're being offered something bigger than, as it were, just winning the game. Maybe you and I have the chance to actually change the game. Wouldn't it be great to join in a worldwide move of God along those lines? So that's it for this week's Journey On. God bless you. I'm so glad you came. Again, let us know at mail at blueoceanfaith.org if you'd like to hear more about this growing online group. It's about the things we're talking about here or about our in-person group in Los Angeles. And I can't wait to be back with you next week.